0: This is Susan Robb. Welcome to New Books in Children's Literature, and I'm the host. And today we're talking with Joan Trumpower-Mall Holland about two new books—one for middle grade and a picture book. Both of them are called "She Stood for Freedom." They're written. By Loki Mulholland and also the picture book is in collaboration with Angela Farewell. The books focus on Joan's life and her experience in particular in the civil rights movement. So first of all, Joan, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Now I wanted to um, talk with you, uh, your son Loki, who's also a documentary film producer has written this story and it but it was a story that he also told in a documentary that he produced a few years ago but prior to that it, it's a story that many people may not be familiar with as part of the civil rights movement and the freedom riders experience so tell me first how you view your story was it something that you did continue to Go out and share with people,
1: well, I was just one of thousands and thousands of students, particularly across the South, who got involved in the civil rights movement. No big names there and Once I got through, graduated from school, I took the movement experiences with me, and where they fit into what I was doing, they got worked in um I worked at the Smithsonian, a very lowly clerk job, but my bosses called on me to um, for ideas and actually artifacts from the movement days and to talk about that, raising my kids. It was no secret. And in their schools, I took the experience in um, talking with the kindergarten teacher. They only had white doll babies. Hmm. Well, I made a bunch of rag dolls of all skin tones. And uh, I saw that as a continuation of the movement. I just incorporated it into my life. Bloom where you are planted, as we used to say.
0: Now, the thing, too, with this is that uh, you joined the movement and you grew up in the South and are white. So you decided that. What you were seeing uh, from what the book said, that you decided that this was unjust and that you wanted to be part of it. Was that a difficult decision? And at what age did you start to be aware that you might want to do this?
1: I think it was when I was about 10 years old, visiting Grandma down in Oconee, Georgia, just a dirt poor company town. And I think the real revelation, the moment, I can point to, is when my summertime playmate Mary and I dared each other to go walk back into the, um, what are politely called the quarters, the black section of the community, and poor as it was in the white section, it was so much worse in the black section. And it was when I saw the one-room schoolhouse, whatever mental image we have of those, Back in the woods, tumble-down schools, this was it. Never saw any paint on those boards. You could see the pot-bellied stove in the middle because the door was ajar, no glass in the windows, just wood shutters. One outhouse and one, I think, pump, or it may have been a well, out in the yard. And that was it for the entire black community. And I just knew this was wrong because... At the other end of town was the brand-new post-World War II schoolhouse for white kids, you know, the fanciest building for miles around. And it was wrong. And I sort of vowed to myself that when I could help make the South the best that it could be for all of its people, black and white, because we're all Southerners, we all eat grits, (laughs) um, I would... I would act, and the moment really to get involved in activism didn't come until I was in college with the sit-ins, and I was right there as soon as the students who were doing the sit-ins came to Duke University and invited us to join them down on the picket lines, and I was good to go.
0: And what year were you in in college?
1: I was a freshman in college. This would have been in the spring of um, 1960.
0: And was it something that you had spoken with other college friends about, or was this something you just knew and you decided that you wanted to do?
1: Oh, I hadn't really talked about it um, at all, but the Presbyterian chaplain at Duke, we had Sunday evening meetings, And he told us one week that the next week there would be students from North Carolina College coming to explain about the sit-ins to us. But we were to keep it pretty quiet so the administration didn't lock us out of the building. Um, The police didn't show up. The Rowdies didn't show up. But if anybody we thought would really want to come, we could mention it to them. And my roommate and I went. She was from New York, one of the few Yankees around. (laughs) And... uh, We joined them on the picket line, and a number of, I think, graduate school guys also. But uh, you didn't talk about it.
0: So when you did that, that was your freshman year. And then, how quickly did things move to when you started to actually travel for the movement?
1: Well, I dropped out of Duke. I finished the school year, going to get my money's worth, of course, and. uh, Came back up to Washington, got involved with the movement out of Howard University. Um, the students from North Carolina College asked me to go up there and find out what was happening and let them know. And we were sitting in in Arlington and you know, we said I had movement, will travel. Whenever the call went out, went as far as Rock Hill, South Carolina. And that was really the birthplace of the Freedom Rides in many ways. And... Um, In 1961, with the Freedom Rides, that took me to Mississippi. Um, I had already been accepted at uh, Tuberi College. Applying to historically black school was my response to the riots in Georgia, where my family was from, Um, but the riots in Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes. Uh, under court order, integrated the University of Georgia in Athens and were twice driven off with mobs and tear gas and things. And I felt that this this was not integration. Integration had to be a two-way street. So I applied to Tougaloo and was accepted, though my Virginia high school refused, point-blank refused over the phone to send my transcripts to them. Still haven't got that resolved, but I'm working on it. <laughs> And uh, so the Freedom Rides gave me a ticket to Mississippi in the sovereign state of Mississippi, the great and sovereign state of Mississippi, as they called themselves, um, gave me free room and board for the summer at Parchment Penn. I got out just in time to go to campus.
0: So let me and back get the up books. let me back up to that. So what happened was you you actually took the train down right to Mississippi. Well,
1: a group of us flew New okay. Orleans. Notable member of my group being uh, Stokely Carmichael a Black Power fame. Friends to the end with Stokely, and then we took the train from New Orleans to um, to Jackson, and got arrested.
0: So, uh, so you got arrested right out of the gate, right off. Right when you're well, We
1: got <laughs> off the train and walked into, I forget if it was the white or colored waiting room, probably the white, uh, integrated group of us. And by then, it was down to absolutely scripted. Captain Ray said, um, to move on and move out. And if he didn't budge, y'all hear me? You're gonna do it? You're under arrest. That was it. Off to the paddy wagon.
0: So you did the, so that was your first time getting arrested. Do, had you... Um... No, that was
1: not my first time. Oh. It was probably about my fourth or fifth time.
0: Oh, it was? Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, i have been
1: arrested twice in Durham. Uh-huh. Once in Baltimore. Depending on whether you believe the wire services or my recollection, I was arrested in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So I guess this was the fourth time.
0: And oh, so you were an old hand I think back. I was
1: just taken into protective custody when a group of us... From DC went down to Rock Hill in support of the jail in there. Now, but we were just ticketing.
0: <laughs> now, let me ask you something. At what point in this part of the process were you taught about nonviolent protest? Because that was this, right? Well,
1: the formal instruction, like um, they were getting in Nashville, I never got that. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about nonviolence, turned the other cheek down in the church basement in St. Joseph Amy Church in, um, in Durham, but it was just in general, you, you don't hit back. It's not, you turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor, you know. So all this role playing and stuff didn't get that.
0: So you pretty much you knew that you wanted to do that and you just had to sort out how to deal with it in the situation itself.
1: Yeah. I think there may have been a little bit of you know training with the Freedom Ride, but it was not nothing like it became later. But we were we were on the cutting edge. We didn't get the training, we just did it.
0: Now, when you were down in Jackson, one of the things there was the sit-in at Woolworths. Tell me a little bit about how that happened and what had happened to you up to that point in Jackson.
1: This was in 63, so I would have been a junior in college at Tuvalu, and things had happened in Birmingham uh, with the police dogs and the fire hoses and the kids and all and the NAACP, Medgar Evers and John Salter, one of our professors who was an advisor to the youth chapter, planned out a sit-in at Woolworth. There had been, oh, some boycotting of the stores because of hiring service, you know, all that. Blacks couldn't try on clothes and had to step to the back of the line. And so it it was escalating it um, to actually having a sit-in. The idea being... You can spend your money anywhere else in the store, but you can't sit down and get a Coke at the lunch counter. Now, for the younger folks, Woolworths was sort of like a dollar store is today, a lot of cheap stuff out there for you to get. And the lunch counter was before McDonald's took over, so that was the fast food of, of the era. So if your money's good in one part of the store, it should be good in the other part. And the idea was to have three students who were from Mississippi, not outside of the state, but from Mississippi to sit at the lunch counter. And you would sit until either you were arrested or you were served or the store closed completely. Uh, I was part of a diversionary picket line at another store block or so down the street. And the picket, I was... um, a spotter down there. That means I was just blending into the crowd on the street in downtown Jackson and um, watching what happened. And I had money to find a payphone to phone back to Medgar Everett's office and give reports. Well, the picket line was arrested pretty quickly. We hadn't expected that. So the other spotter and I called back. And gave the report, and then it was like, I haven't seen all these squad cars or anything going down to Woolworth. Let's go down and see what's happening. And when we got down there, that is when chaos broke out. They were pulling Memphis Norman, one guy, off the stool and stomping him, and pulling the girls off the stool. And it was crazy. So Memphis and the guy who was attacking him were former policemen were arrested and taken out by the police. Memphis was bleeding from every opening in his head. I took the seat at the lunch counter between the two girls We got back to their seats. And then two of us were pulled off our seats and pulled to the front of the store, and when we got there, we got free, and we went back to the lunch counter, but we couldn't get back all the way to where the last girl was seated. So there were two of us there, and then the other spotter joined the girl who had been left further down the counter. I mean, there was a substantial mob. We literally could not see that far down the counter. And um, John Salter, our professor, came down and joined us. So there were three of us at the counter. And that just went on and on and on with all the condiments and things being dumped on us and spray paint and name-calling and particularly uh, Professor Salter got roughed up. Now, to me, the big story of that event was the photographer who took the famous picture.
0: Fred Blackwell, is that?
1: Fred Blackwell, yes. He was our age, 22. He had gone to the same high school as the kids in the mob. The high school was just a couple blocks away. Uh, He knew a lot of them because he'd... Friends with their older brothers and sisters and lived in the same neighborhood, knew some that way. So, of course, his sympathies were with his friends when he came in. But he stood on the counter, substantial danger to himself. He could have been pulled off it as a traitor, ending that little photography adventure. But he stood there watching his friends and watching us nonviolently sitting at the counter. Three hours later, when it ended, his sympathies had shifted to the demonstrators. And to me, that was the power of nonviolence. That's what we saw it as being all about, redemptive nonviolence. And um, he's still an amazing man.
0: And that photograph became one that became an iconic f- photo of of the civil rights movement it's you know many many people see it and recognize it and the thing that struck me in that photo is in looking at how you're sitting you're in the center of the photo with your hand up sort of holding you know holding your head up and stuff as you're sitting just like it looks like a comfortable pose if it weren't for the fact that all these things are being dumped on you by this crowd that you can see surrounding you
1: that was quite a long day I think I reached an out-of-body experience disassociated from the actual counter. I mean, you can kill the body, but not the soul. And my soul had already left and was sort of my guardian angel up above. And what happened to the body? That happened.
0: Now, what happened after that? I know one of the things that the, the police were not in the store, right? They, they stayed outside.
1: The police refused to come in. There had been a Supreme Court ruling the week, I think the week before, that sitting at, you know, was it like that, and sitting like some sports players are doing today was free speech. And so the police could not of their own volition come in and arrest us. The manager had to close the store and ask the police to come in and arrest us if we refuse to leave. And we wouldn't do that. Now the irony is that that Supreme Court decision came out of two cases I was involved in, one from the Durham sit-ins and I was one of the plaintiffs whose case went to the Supreme Court there and the Glen Echo sit-in. Now The Supreme Court decision was like the Brown versus Board. It took several cases that were similar and combined them. And so this took several sit-in type cases and combined them for one decision. And in Glen Echo, which was an amusement park with a merry-go-round, I, being white, could go in and buy the tickets. This is what the the Howard group did. Glen Echo sit-in. Right. Okay, I went in and bought the tickets and came back out and handed them out to people who then, ticket in hand, got on the merry-go-round and got arrested. So I was, I won't say crucial, but I was heavily involved in the Glen Echo case as well as being a plaintiff in the Durham case, and that was the Supreme Court decision they kept the police, the police used to justify not coming in to restore order in the store. little irony there.
0: And so they were outside. All of this mayhem was going on inside. How did things end in Woolworths? And then you were what? You were taken off to prison, no?
1: No, we weren't arrested for that one. Okay. Um, our college president, when he got word of what was happening. He came down and tried to get us out of there safely. He actually ended up sitting at the lunch counter talking to newsmen further down the counter, but it's nice to have your college president as a sit-in person. He tried to get the police involved in restoring order. They wouldn't do it. He tried to get the manager to close the store. He wouldn't do it. He contacted either the regional or the national, I don't know which, office of Woolworths, and they advised the manager to close the store. And finally, the manager did. And then it was negotiated that we would have safe passage once the crowd was out because the crowd was just milling around on the sidewalk on the main street of Jackson, North Capitol. Um, The crowd was just out there, so the police agreed to give us protection while car, cars were brought up and we were driven back down to the black area of town um, in Mager ever's office. And I want to say that for every person who demonstrates there's even more people who have their back. You had the people who drove cars to get us down there, to get us out of there. You had people who were just um, in the store, keeping an eye on the situation and reporting back to Megra's office. You had the people who were making the phone calls to the press, locally and nationally. You had the people lining up lawyers and bails people as needed. Some, some of the times these jobs overlapped. You had the hairdresser who had a salon across the street from Megra's office who took the girls over there and did their hair, shampooed and did up their hair. The women who took our nylons, because you dressed up and wore nylons back then, ladies, um, took those and washed them and washed our legs and arms and cleaned us up. You had all these people, and people who cooked food for you, all these people that have your back in a demonstration. I would say outnumber those of you usually who are actually demonstrating. So, for folks who don't think they can be nonviolent or handle the police and arrest and all, there's plenty of other things to do.
0: Now, when you were doing. Just as important. Yeah.
1: Those folks are just as important as the demonstrators.
0: I was going to ask you of the different kinds of things that happened. I mean, you talked about how it was an out of body experience for you when you were at the lunch counter. What about when you were in Parchman Prison and and some of those different experiences, because then you ha- were doing it for a longer time. How did you yourself cope on a day-to-day basis?
1: Well, in Parchman, we set up sort of a routine. One day a week, the rabbi or other men of God could come go pray and talk with them. You got a shower, I think, I'm not sure if it was once or twice a week, you got out and you took a shower. Uh We had organized quiet periods. We had singing time. Uh, we had people who had a certain expertise give lectures like you were in a college classroom. We learned a lot about ancient Greece, and Greece mythology, and a bit of Swahili, and French, and... Any topic somebody knew a lot about, I think I gave a lecture on Gandhi and nonviolence because I was more grounded in that in the southern movement than a lot of the freedom riders who came down, were just sort of, well, I won't say just, but they were supporters from the north. They were northerners who had been on sympathy picket lines and what have you and helped raise money, but they didn't have any real experience with the Gandhian philosophy so I, I talked on that. Lots of different topics like that. We put together a mock radio show. In fact, um, a play was written, uh, Wiley, the name is, um, in North Carolina called The Parchment Hour. Right. It's a mock radio show. Uh, people telling jokes, recounting experiences. Actually, um, it's a takeoff on the mock radio hour that we put on with each cell having a different different part they were supposed to contribute. The news, the jokes, the songs, the commercials, each cell had its little part to play and that kept us entertained too. So that was good and um, your belief that what you were doing would cause the desired change. We were trying to put pressure on not only the state of Mississippi, but the federal government. The Kennedys didn't like the Freedom Rides. They were not, you know, bad publicity for international relations. But the Supreme Court had already, like the December before, come out with a ruling that all the facilities associated with interstate travel had to be open to everybody equally. Now, back in the 40s, there had come the ruling that the means of transportation had to be available equally, but that had been ignored um, in the South. And so now that we had a new Supreme Court ruling that extended it to all the facilities, train stations, bus stations, even airports, we were trying to put the pressure on to get that enforced. And it worked. In September, the Kennedys said that they were requesting the Interstate Commerce Commission to come up with the rulings, and they were—they did, and they were effective November 1st, I think. So fill the jails, make it expensive and inconvenient, what have you, for Mississippi and the federal government to keep things segregated. And we did it. I mean,
0: in jail, they gotta feed you. Yeah, no, that's it's uh, certainly true that it, because I've read different parts about the Kennedy administration and they were really hoping to avoid all of that, right?
1: And they were doing their best to avoid all of that.
0: Now, you've met, you talk about um, Medgar Evers and Stoke, um Carmichael. You've met many of the people who were leaders in the movement. Uh, can you tell me about some of the different ones and what your experience was when you met different people and and what your thinking was about the way different people approached the movement?
1: Now, I remember that I was barely 20 years old and a college student. The leaders, King, Medgar, Barrett, Rustin, whoever, they were adults. Many of them were like family men. They were they were operating in a whole different plane from lowly students. So I didn't really know them as friends. Now Stokely, he was another student and yeah, we were friends. John Lewis. He was not based in um in Mississippi. I was based in Mississippi, but there were regular meetings, um the student nonviolent coordinating committee. And so you knew each other um, on a friendly basis. Bernard Lafayette, James Bevel, Diane Nash, um, Ruby Doris Smith. They were fellow students, and we were, you know, comparing notes on schools and what our different groups in different cities were doing and sharing ideas and all that. So I think we were a dedicated group. Most of us were Southerners. So we, we had a, even though I was quite we had came out of the same overall culture we all knew what what the food was which is folks come from the north I had to explain what things were <laughs> <laughs> they look at black eyed peas what is that you know <laughs>
0: um
1: those vegetables are overcooked no that's the way they're supposed to be <laughs> and well seasoned and um the church music and and that whole experience I was much Closer culturally, in many ways, to the black students in the movement than I was to the Yankees. Um, still friends with a number of those Yankees, but we were from different
0: worlds. So, when you when you were doing that, when when all of this was going on, did you find that there were many or some friends that you were involved with who just couldn't sustain being involved in this? Did it become too hard for people?
1: Not that I remember. You were just sort of caught up in it. Now, some people might... They're not going to say, this is too hard, I can't do it. Hmm. But they might say they've got to pay more attention to their studies or, or something and not go that day. But we had said if you don't have thing if you don't have your nonviolence on today don't go on the demonstration but we became like family and supported each other um, encouraged each other and just sort of well we hung out socially as well as you know on the picket line i'm sure there were people who who must have gotten overwhelmed and had to drop out but i can't call the name now some folks i know that the pressures became so great and the experience so intense that later in life they just couldn't hold it together the psychological damage, I know several people like that but at the time I don't remember anybody saying I just can't do this anymore
0: interesting let me ask you another question you know now there are different kinds of protest movements. Uh, what would you say about how you view different, how, how protest may have changed or do you feel not so much? Does it depend on the circumstance or, you the know, is it a thing of the time? It
1: came out of the Arab Spring. I would look at the at the newspaper in the morning, and the photos were like a total flashback. Kneeling on a bridge to pray with the, you know, the military there. Um, painting the flag on the face. Lying down in front of vehicles. It was an absolute flashback. So a lot of the same things have gone on. I still think the nonviolence is the way to go, and I see the demonstrators for the most part being nonviolent. Yes, there are occasions where there are riots break out, but those are not necessarily the demonstrators. Those are other frustrated people in the community. The demonstrations today have, or cell phones, I mean my land cell phone, you just push some buttons and you've got um, a phone connection. You're not having to keep some money and find a working payphone and close yourself in and dial. I mean, people were drug out of phone booths and beaten back in the day. I think the thing that's really helped now is all these, and I don't have, I'm say, folks, I'm old-fashioned, I'm speaking on a rotary phone, I don't own a cell phone, I don't have the vocabulary down to discuss this properly, too much gray hair, you know, it gets in the way of those brain cells, <laughs> but you have these videos going viral, and on the evening news, something happens, and within hours, it's all over the, the news, it's online, on TV and up teen channels 24-7, the word is out there. And I think the tools are being able to record what is happening and disperse it. I mean, back in the day, we had three networks, three. They had half an hour of news every evening. 15 minutes of national, 15 minutes of local. That was it, no 24-7. So you had a TV cameraman with a big camera on his shoulder recording what was happening. You didn't see that until a day later during that 15 minutes. Now it's instantaneous and it's everywhere. And that I think is a great tool. Now that can just—it can also cause your eyes to just sort of glaze over. Oh yeah, it's happening again. But it gets the word out there. Uh, some people say, "Oh, there's violence that's going on now, and the police shootings and da da da." It's so much—we're going back. It's getting worse. Well, no, it's getting publicity. You it may s- not be getting any better, but it is getting publicity. It's not getting worse.
0: Now, you've worked with young people. You have a foundation and you've worked with young people. Do you hear things that sound very similar to you uh, as when you were, you know, with students you were with at the time?
1: Well, my role now is speaking at schools. And it can be anything from second grade to graduate school. I think the concerns that I hear, how can you be nonviolent? What if you can't be nonviolent? What do you see as the problems today? How do how do you organize? What do you do about the opposition? The same type of things we, we worried about. And I'd say that with the opposition, try to show them a better way and try to find points in common. It would be amazing when you can make... You can disarm people by finding a point of agreement. I mean, an individual, you can't disarm a whole movement. But taking away at it one by one and making coalitions with other groups that have similar concerns or overlapping concerns is a way to organize. But I think the questions are still pretty basic the same basic questions we were asking and probably the same basic questions that have been asked for thousands of years.
0: Well, let me ask you one one last question, just in general. Okay. If people want to know more about your experience, where can they go to find out more? There's a website for the documentary, correct?
1: Yes, my son's documentary, um, An Ordinary Hero, You can go to anordinaryhero.com and follow leads from there. If you Google me, only believe half of what you read. Sometimes I'm amazed. (laughs) But I think there's a lot out there. Watching the documentary, um, books on the Freedom Riders. My friend Mike O'Brien has a book about the Jackson sit-in, which is very good as far as bringing people involved including police and people in the crowd, to the moment, and then following them, their lives later. Book um We Shall Not Be Moved by Mike O'Brien. And now my son's got these two books for, for grade school kids, which I think are pretty good. And you don't just think picture books, little kids. Think primary sources, you older elementary kids. 'Cause by the time you get in junior high, they're gonna be all about primary sources and you got a Good introduction right there. Plus you may get some good ideas, you know, it may spark a few thoughts on at your end. And gee, this is what folks were doing. What can we do now? Go for it.
0: So is that what you tell kids when Yeah.
1: I ask kids to Think of a problem you would be willing to do something about. Call on one of them near the front of the crowd. Ask anybody else who agrees with them. This is something they're just about. Raise your hand. Tell the kid at the front to turn around and look. There's your group. Start doing something. It could be something very simple. On bullying. On the new kid in the classroom. On protesting some unfair and Something is unfair on the playground. You yeah, know, people can be, un- teachers can be unreasonable on the playground. Sometimes, not usually, but sometimes, find the problem and do something.
0: So being able to stand up for things and also to recognize that just because you see something, it doesn't mean that you can't do anything to impact it.
1: Yeah, chip away at it. Or maybe change it completely. Whatever you can do. And I mean those four guys who sat down in Greensboro at the lunch counter. Now yeah they got the idea from the women at Bennett College. But that's sort of lost in history. We we'll go to the four guys who sat down. That sparked a movement across the South. When the freedom rides were stopped the next year, it was those students who had been sitting in that kept the freedom rides going. Some of them when they got out of jail, stayed and worked in the communities in Mississippi. And that moved over into Alabama, voting voter registration, because if you're going to influence who makes the laws, what laws are made, who enforces them, you got to be able to vote. Voting rights became the big thing. The march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, you had John Lewis there. You had other people who had been freedom riders on the Edmund Tennis Bridge got beaten. It was so terrible that the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, who was only president because he had been chosen to balance the ticket as a Southerner to counterbalance that Yankee Kennedy, Johnson is now president. He goes on national television. And back then, everything came to a standstill when the president went on live. Everybody was glued to that television. He said, we must have a Voting Rights Act, and we shall overcome the anthem of the Civil Rights Movement. That was the death knell of the party that had propelled him to the presidency, the Southern Democrats. We got the Voting Rights Act we got federal registrars. we got the first elected black governor in the history of the United States, my own Virginia Doug Wilder. And we have President Obama, love him or not. And Obama has traced his election back to the four guys sitting at the lunch counter. So, folks, when you do something small, you never know how far those ripples are going to go. So just do it. And let it go where it will.
0: Well, Joan, thank you. That's a uh, certainly something that I think we all need to hear at different times. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. And I hope Thanks. go for it.